In Farrell Sam's novel, Run with the Horseman, he tells the story of a boy growing up in rural Georgia in the 1930s. Plowing with a mule marked the transition from boyhood to adulthood, and he was anxious to get about that task. There were some field etiquette, as Farrell Sams describes it. Basically, times when the mule was permitted to stop, and most times when the mule was not permitted to stop. But on this particular day, the mule quickly realized who was in charge, and it wasn't the boy. <laughs> and so the mule stopped numerous times, and the boy would stumble and fall on the plow and bruise himself, but mostly he bruised his ego and felt a growing frustration time after time, until one time in frustration he jammed his hands into the pockets of his bib overalls, and there he found a kitchen match and an ill-conceived plan was rooted in his adolescent brain. The next time that mule made an unexpected stop, the boy struck that match and shoved it toward the source of his frustration. The mule found sudden inspiration and took off dragging the plow and tearing up half an acre of cotton before the father could get the mule stopped. The father banished the boy to the house. Sullen and defeated, he walked toward the house, but he overheard his father say, he ain't a bad boy. I just can't think of enough things to tell him not to do. <laughs> Several months ago now, on a beautiful day, my grandsons went out to play basketball on our driveway. All is fine as long as there's noise, but you learn to be suspicious of the silence. And that afternoon I heard the silence. And I stepped to the door and I noticed grandson number one was not there, nor was my basketball. I turned to grandson number two and I said, where is grandson number one? And he gave that wonderful shoulder and hand shrug and his words said, I don't know, but his eyes flicked to the roof where grandson number one was preparing his trick shot. <laughs> and I thought of Farrell Sam's comment, he ain't a bad boy, I just can't think of enough things to tell him not to do. How do we raise children to be adults without burdening them with lots of unnecessary rules? How do we get them to that place in adulthood where they make wise decisions, where they choose not to hurt themselves and not to hurt others, where they retain a spirit of love and laughter, a spirit of adventure, a spirit of justice, speaking out against oppressive things, where they ask embarrassing questions and explore possibilities and they have creative possibilities that they pursue that don't involve shooting a basketball off a roof. Religion in Jesus' day had evolved from Moses' Ten Commandments, those, those basics for how to live in the wilderness as a people coming out of slavery, slavery and moving toward becoming a full nation. But by this time in Jesus' day, the religious leaders made more and more rules about what not to do and what defines you as good, what defines you as righteous. Oh, occasionally a Micah would come along 
and break it down into the basics. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God? But Micah's voice was a distant echo for Jesus' day. So much religion today embraces authoritarian leadership with strict admonitions about who is to be hated and who is to be ignored and certainly despise those people who challenge their authority. And arguments as twisted as pretzels buttress their rules as they try to tell us who not to love. The problem then and now is the crushing of our humanity. Crushing our need to explore and expand and embrace and question and grow. They live politically oppressed lives and their religion wasn't helping them. And so Matthew, in this fifth chapter, portrays Jesus in Moses-like fashion, providing guidance. Just as Moses went up to the mountain for the Ten Commandments, Jesus sits on the mountainside and begins to teach what we call the Sermon on the Mount. But it's fair to ask, what's the theme? It looks like just a collection of sayings, any one of which could be the theme of a whole sermon. And many preachers, and myself included, have done whole series of sermons on each individual verse. But I dare say we need to step back and take in the whole of what's said. I think Matthew is redefining righteousness. For us, righteousness is a bad breath word. It conjures up images of piety to which we do not aspire. But for them, it meant so much. It starts with Joseph having to learn to lean into love and away from the definition of righteousness that would just put Mary away and expose her to great risk. At baptism, Jesus says he's fulfilling all righteousness. And just a few verses later in this chapter, it will state very strongly that unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm often told, have a blessed day. There's a house on my, when I run in my neighborhood, there's a house I always go by. I can't run in the neighborhood without going by it. And there's been a man working there for months on one house, rehabbing it, painting outside, working inside. And I don't need much excuse to stop on a run and catch my breath and talk, making it look like I'm just being friendly. Delightful man, but after each conversation, he would say to me, have a blessed day. How kind is that? And yet I want to say the word blessed could also be translated honorable. And nobody has ever told me to have an honorable day. Jesus announces behaviors here, attitudes. We call the Beatitudes. The meaning is obscured and muted by repetition. And yet I think the words guide us in how to live, how to live honorable lives today. Who are the blessed, the honorable? The poor, the mourners, the humble, the hungry, the peacemakers, the hated, the excluded, the reviled, the defamed. It doesn't sound honorable nor blessed. He says, blessed, honorable are the poor in spirit, those people aware of their own brokenness and need. 
Every Friday night we do a service here and the people who attend that service will leave here and go downstairs to the Narcotics Anonymous meeting and they come here aware of their need. It is a gathering of broken, spiritually needy people and it always seems to me that there is God in the midst in this place. Blessed and honorable are those who mourn we often make that about those who experience personal grief, but it's also more. It's about those whose hearts are broken by evil, by injustice, who see racism and feel the pain of that in here in their gut. And those are people who give us hope that there will be a better tomorrow. Blessed and honorable are the meek, those folks who walk gently in this world and who treat others with great gentleness for they will be people with souls smiling at the beauty of the earth and the beauty of people. Blessed and honorable are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And there's that theme again. This did not arise in a land where their choices were Coke or Diet Coke. This arose up in a land where you could starve to death and where you could die of thirst. My stomach grumbles even now, but there's no way you can define that as hunger. Jesus affirms a condition that we do not really want. A painful awareness of not having enough of what we need to survive and thrive. And it is this spiritual condition of being honorable, righteous. At the end of the fourth chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes to that place associated with righteousness. He goes to the synagogue, and then he goes beyond that to the place where people are diseased, to the place where they're defined as ineligible to be righteous. He went to those who out of illness craved health and those who out of exclusion thirsted for belonging and those who out of emptiness longed to be filled. And all the while, religious leaders busied themselves with what not to do. Jesus met people in their need, not avoiding them because of their need. And they shall be satisfied with this dynamic love that's joy-filled and meaning-making. Blessed and honorable are the merciful. One of the restauranteurs here in Louisville had an episode with some boys, teenage boys, throwing rocks by his restaurant. A threat to his customers, a threat to his property, a threat to his business. What do you do? You call the police, you run them off. It's not what he did. He sort of cornered them and he lectured them. And one of the boys would say, he talked to us a long, long, long time. But he told them about how he grew up on the streets and about how he had been stabbed 41 times, about his jail time, and about where they were going if they didn't get off the streets. And then he offered them jobs. Mercy. Blessed, honorable are the pure in heart. I started just to skip this one because I'm not sure that any of us put purity at the top of our New Year's resolution list. But it's more about the singleness of purpose. This 
single desire to see God in the world, in others, in myself. It's really kind of scary, but what if I do see God, you see? What if I see God in you? What if I see God in some circumstance? How would that change things, change me? What might God ask me to do? Blessed, honorable are the peacemakers. Fred Craddock told about a woman friend of his who was listening to a radio DJ, and the DJ said that somewhere out there, someone who doesn't know your name, who's never met you, and who knows nothing about you personally, wants to punch your lights out simply because you are different from them. Peacemaking, reducing hate, increasing understanding, practicing openness and a sacred curiosity. All of this is hard work. All of it is soul work and all of it is our work as children of God. Then Jesus says, it's honorable to be persecuted and reviled and lied about and slandered. And I, I've never found much blessing in that, honestly. I have found a lot of anxiety about work and income and a bucket load of anger that just about ate my stomach lining. But he says, this mistreatment follows you because you follow me. Make no mistake about it. Loving everybody is risky. Loving everybody threatens those who only want to love those of their own group who want to think in terms of them and us. Standing with the poor and the broken and the alone will offend some powerful people. Standing and making peace offends those who profit from war and not just those who make weapons, but those politicians who use the fear of war to profit electorally. When we express the privileges that we have, but which others are denied, we will face angry opposition. Elie Wiesel wrote, there may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. When I read that, I thought about the crosses on our lawn that we do every year, a memorial to those who were murdered. And it occurs to me that not a single person here could do anything to prevent any of those murders. But we protest it. We bear witness to what Jesus would want. Here is this call to action to be the church, to make Jesus visible in a world that prefers prefers to silence truth. Jesus defines righteousness, his faith, not as more and more rules about what we should not do, but as daring and honorable life committed to love and exploring what that love means in our world. Amen.